Native Stories is pleased to introduce you to Ned Pablo of Guahan, who is an indigenous Chamorro and grassroots activist from the Marianas Islands. This is his story about Chamorro sovereignty and a message for all our Pacific Island brothers and sisters. Can you tell our listeners about your background and where you grew up? My name is Ned Pablo. I'm from the island of Guahan, also known as Guam. I'm a indigenous Chamorro rights fighter. I'm an activist. I practice and I've learned the traditional cultural way of hunting and fishing in the land and the sea and gathering of different uh, types of fruits and and uh, foods that is uh, Chamorro food, local food, Pacific Islander food. You know, I would love to see our culture uh, last and continue, especially our language into the future, which is very possible, but it's a, it's a challenge. How would you define the term Chamorro? Chamorro, it was given to us by the Spanish, but our other traditional way of saying it is Tautautanu, which translates people of the land. So we're the Manautautanu, the people of the land of Guahan, Luta, Tinian, Saipan, Alimogan, Pagan, Agrigan, Asuncion, Guguan, Urakas, and Mau. What is the difference between um, Guam and Guahan? Guam was uh, created by the American people. The, that's their English Anglo-Saxon vernacular. So, you know, they cannot pronounce Guahan, so they say Guam. Guahan, though, its definition meaning we have because of Guam, Guahan being the biggest in the Marianas and has a larger landmass within the Marianas island chain, archipelago. We have more freshwater rivers. Uh, we have a lot of underwater springs and we have more different varieties of trees and species of birds and different uh, bird species and and animals long time ago here in Guahan. So a lot of islands from different parts of the Micronesian chain used to see Voyager every time they have like a disaster, a natural disaster or a bad drought, they come to Guam because even during the dry season, we still have a lot of water running and food. Well, in your opinion, what is the difference between a Chamorro and a Guamanian? Guamanian, you know, then again, it was created through the vernacular and the U.S., the Americans' uh, writings and pronunciation. So it's actually Tautautanu, right? Or the Tsamoru. Uh, but the difference is nowadays, Guamanian is anyone that is born here. Truly, that's supposed to belong to the Tsamorus, but now it's interpreted as anyone who born here or live here a long time, so they're Guamanian. And you have Tsamorus who accept that word and will call themselves Guamanian. I, I call myself Tsamoru, the Tautautonu, the people of this land. Is there some sort of, um, well, let me reference that. In Hawaii, we have uh, blood quantum that is imposed. And a native Hawaiian with a capital N versus a native Hawaiian lowercase n are two separate legal entities, depending on the blood See, quantum. Us, <laughs> us Tsamorus, we don't 
buy or believe into that system that was basically the Anglo-Saxon, the U.S. federal way of indicating how entitled you are truly through uh, how pure your blood is. In tomorrow, thinking and, and faith and belief, even if you're blonde hair, blue eyes, or you're black skin and Afro or you're yellow, if you have a lineage from your mother, especially, but if, even through your father, even just one drop or half of a drop or the tiniest of the drop, you are tomorrow. We don't discriminate our own people, uh, how they look. As long as you can trace your lineage and you are coming from a descendant of our ancestors who were the first settlers and forefathers of this island, then you are a Tomoru. But we have what they call Poksai also. We, we accept them. They were born and raised here and they adopted and inherited our culture and our language. And they're just as equivalent and equal to a Tomoru without any bias because they are basically spitting image of, of uh, indigenous tomorrow to the language and the culture and the belief. That resonates also with me because traditionally Native Hawaiians also didn't discriminate with the blood quantums. The blood quantums were imposed by the Americans. And um, traditionally, what mattered was your genealogy. As long as if you could prove, particularly on the mother's side, that you were Kanakamauli or Native Hawaiian, that was it, you're Native Hawaiian. But for me in particular, that is very important when it comes to inheriting the land. That is very important because we have to first cater and serve to the remaining descendants that still exist on this island because we have a lot of Chamorros who have, have a legacy in their family of joining the military and they have left the island then you have the ones that stayed back and some that came back and they are landless because of the illegal occupation and illegal land takings from the U.S. federal government through their military. Speaking about the relationship with Guahan and the United States, uh, what are some important events in Chamboro history that you think the general public should know about? Uh, which part of the history, the Spanish or with the U.S. federal government? Okay, let's go back a little bit. Um, before okay, Magellan. Okay, we'll start with before when? Before when? Um, before Magellan, how was Guahan structured? Was it chiefs? It was a matriarchal society. Uh, we they've had three caste systems. The ones that were on the shore, some will call them the Matao or the Matua. I rather go by for my elders and other elders around the island and in other places in the Marianas, the Matao. And then you have what they call the Atsaud, who are just a little bit inland, who were closely related and did a lot of marriage with the Matao. Then you had the very low class who were the Manatsang. Who knows, <clears throat> it could be that they are of... Um, a mixed origin with the Chamorros, or it could have been also um, something taboo that was committed a long time ago and they were outcasted to live on the shore or near the coastal areas where there's a lot of good uh, source of food and protein. And the Manyatsang lived in the mountains where the rivers and, and the streams were, and they didn't really have the, the best uh, subsistence, but they were farmers and they were 
trading with the high class with fish and other stuff. There's books that say that they weren't allowed to eat fish, but I don't believe that. They specialized in other things that within their own resources inland, you know, maybe certain stones and certain trees. I'm pretty sure they did the harvesting and intertraded with the high class. But the high class, higher class system were the defenders of the island. And then you had the second class who were the child who were just pretty much right next to them. They also were the defenders, all of them, if it came down to it. So in 1521, when Magellan came, he arrived in Umata, Tsotsugu, the village of Tsotsugu. And before he made landfall, he was already surrounded by a lot of canoes from within the southern community, most likely. And they were helped, given provisions, water and everything. And at the same time, our ancestors, you know, because they found them in the ocean pretty much dying of scurvy and starvation and lack of refreshment, water. So in our own belief system is, you know, we helped you, so we're going to take something. So they took a skiff, a small little skiff, and brought it back. And Magellan was mad about it. So he went back inland and he destroyed the village of Tsotsugu and killed about 30-some or more uh, Samoros and, and destroyed the entire village. And then, of course, he left. He went to Philippines and he got killed there, uh, partaking in a, a tribal war there. But, you know, he had his own crew who survived that war and were able to make it back to Spain. And they left the coordinates. And from then on, more conquests and sea voyages for expeditions to discover more land and resources. But they were just looking for gold, of course. Kept passing through the Marianas and filling up with provisions. During those times, they've never made it into the land. And then around maybe 60 some years later, now Spain is sending Legaspi to go all over the globe to claim all the, the places that they've so-called found and, and, and claim it under the Spanish crown. And that being said, and it was done here in, in Guam, in the south again, uh, that's what started it. And then you had San Vitoris, a Jesuit priest who came here before in a prior uh, uh, stoppage when they needed to get provisions and they're going to make it to Manila during the Acapulco and the Man Manila Galleon uh, days. And then he was amused and, and inspired to bring Christianity to our ancestors. And that's what started the war when he came over. He didn't like that we were naked. He thought we were savage. and um, But even later on in his writings, uh, he wrote, that even the Tamoros were more Christian than the Christians in, in Europe because we, when we marry or, you know, are coupled, we would last all the way to old age and death. Not like in Europe, I guess that wasn't the case. And then when did the Americans arrive in Guam? In 1898. And that was... And when they arrived... Go ahead. Oh, no. Um... That was during the Spanish-American War. 
that was also the same year that they um, formally took over Hawaii, as well as uh, Puerto Rico, yes. the Philippines, and for time Cuba. So then, and that coincided with the what they called the Solomon Report or the Solomon Act, volumes one and two. That um, was the blueprint to assimilate and to colonize the whole Pacific. Some will question it and say primarily Micronesia, but it was basically a blueprint to take over the whole Pacific and Philippines, which they pretty much did except for Cuba and Philippines because they fought for it. And um, Guam, unfortunately, when they arrived, the first... uh, line of order was to go in and destroy anything history, anything of history within the Spanish and, and the Tomorrow. So they went to the churches, they destroyed everything. And then another part of uh, the order was to tax the, the locals, the indigenous Chamorros. So where the subdue was, you know, through their imperialism and colonialism, uh, to subjugate us through taxation if and to take our land through the taxation if we could not pay it. And, you know, our our elders during that time were just agrarian society farmers, you know. they Land was everything to them. Uh, that's how they exchanged. That's how they got brides. That's how they acquired more land or different kinds of wealth. And... When they started doing that, if you couldn't pay, you would have to work for the public works, maintaining roads. So that's like modern day government slavery onto the Tomorrows. They also brought along, uh, as time went by, uh, around 1910, the naval appointed governor banned our language, banned whistling, singing. There was a curfew. It was a ruthless... uh, Appointed governor at that time, naval governor. Uh, his name uh, can't recall right now, but that also stigma the way the Tomorrow's felt within the Americans because you know everything that they were doing was uh, very callous and and very cruel. So they removed that governor and and you know they tried to make it better, but still, already our our elders were very discontent. And were unhappy with their presence. They actually felt that they had more freedom and sovereignty during when the Spanish naval government era. And they didn't try to stop our language uh, during the Spanish time. Yes, they, you know, almost genocided us, but they, they, the Jesuit priests even promoted to, to continue have us continue speaking our language. It's mixed with some Spanish because they've been here for a long time, but we still have a good percentage of our ancient Chamorro uh, language intact within uh, the way we converse and talk still. Also, during that time, uh, in the early 1900s, they were taking children away from families because they were thinking they were impoverished or were living in such... Uh, slum conditions but you know we're islanders to them it would look like that but that's island life what happened was when they were taking some of the children then you know pretty much all the elders of that that time in the early 1900s were ready to pretty much die for their children if they don't return them so right away they brought the children back but you know it stigmatized us too you know with the boarding schools it 
you kind of speaking uh, Tomoru only English. And that continued on all the way into like the late 70s and as early 80s that it was still being instilled of you can, you know, because they, they, they were a proxy government, you know, of the federal government and they give us funds and all that. But they were making our own government leaders at that time posting all over the doors and the walls in the government and in the schools uh, speak English. They were banning our language and assimilating us and indoctrinating us to their own laws and their own language and their own ways and their own beliefs. There was also a time period like Gua, Guahan, when the Japanese had taken over after bombing Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's the occupation of uh, Japan because, you know, they're at war with the U.S. How was uh, the treatment of Chamoru under the Japanese? Of course, it's a time of world war. And when there's war, there's going to be a lot of food and, and medicine and provisions that will cater to the the occupying force, which was Japan. And But, you know, there's other stories, too, of how there were certain Japanese soldiers and uh, that, you know, treated the Chamorros good because, you know, they felt sorry and they, they had families, too, and did what they could within their time here, the Japanese uh, soldiers that, that weren't as cruel as some others. But, yes, they were one of the cruelest, you know. They looked at the Tomorrows from Guam as sympathizers and collaborators with the U.S. when, in fact, it wasn't really the case. There was only a few Chamorro families that, you know, who were basically siding with the, the U.S. and protected them, like C. Tweed. But a lot of Chamorros were, you know, were only doing it because they didn't know better. and They're trying but, to survive, yeah. Yes, exactly. So then Guam... But, after, mm-hmm. but when the U.S. came back, you know, because they basically were here, they packed up and left. They didn't even warn our, our elders that, hey, there's a contingency in uh, impending Imperial Army that's going to, you know, do all kinds of things that could affect the livelihood and the safety and, and the life of everybody. They didn't give a, a single warning, nothing. They just packed up and left. And they even um, didn't take the wives of uh, servicemen who married Chamorro women. They only took the servicemen. That, that, that's how racist they were, you know. And and the U.S. Uh, naval government were like dictatorship, you know. They During that time, they did anything they want. They treated us tomorrow like we were not human beings, like we were uh, uneducated, uh, savage people. And then when they came back for the recapture of the island, it's not liberation. Yeah, the individual soldier may have liberated because, you know, it's world war and everyone is good versus the axis of evil. But when 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 they came back, they, their only interest was our, our land. And at and, and the same time, not only did they destroy a lot of our coastal areas where the main agricultural uh, epicenters were, where the prime uh, fertile lands were, they destroyed... You know, a lot of our ecosystems, our natural habitats of wildlife, and they started clearing everything, land grabbing. They polluted and contaminated a lot of our 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 land. 
with uh, dioxins and PCBs, PFOS and hard metals, all kinds of chemicals that are so cancerous and carcinogen that that's why we have one of the highest rate of thyroid issues, cancer, uh, uh, diabetes, because it's all was consumed by our, our elders and, and even my generation, anyone born in the 80s, we were drinking high levels of PFOS and, and Agent Orange, uh, Salvex. These are all dioxins, herbicide dioxins. And um, that has contributed to the high death rates and, and uh, stillbirths. Uh, there's a high mortality rate here in Guam with, within the Chamor community. Also now, you know, we got MGO, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, GMO, sorry. GMOs, that's not helping either. We're, we're basically inducing more that toxins and contamination into our diet. Um, there's some areas on this island that is so contaminated. Most of it is where the military had presence or it's, it's still within their jurisdiction that they are claiming is their their own land, U.S. sovereign soil, when in fact it's all stolen property, you know, mainly in the north. At one point they owned almost 80% of the island and then now uh, after years went by, they a lot of families have gotten their land back. A lot of it was deemed uh, uh, excess and now they have about a 28% presence on Guam, especially with this uh, now marine realignment from Okinawa to Guahan. It, it uh, is increasing how much land they are still occupying, which now, if I'm not mistaken, it should be about 28% of the island landmass. Currently, Guam is listed by the United Nations as a non-self-governing territory. What efforts have been made lately towards decolonization? There is a commission, to be honest with you, has gained momentum compared to the stagnancy that has occurred for the past almost four decades. I'll say three and a half decades already. Uh, the only thing is, you know, we are only allowed statehood, independence, and free association. Before, it used to be uh, Commonwealth. But they threw that out of uh, the, the decolonization. Now, that's another injustice in its own because now we are in the system. There's a, there's a lawsuit against our Chamorro-only vote because they're using U.S. constitutionality against uh, our self-determination, which we are chartered and... And we were signed what more by them and guaranteed as a non-self-governing territory to one day be able to choose our self-determination, our sovereignty, our de destiny, our political status. And now you have this who is trying to eliminate that when we were given that because of the injustice of being a colony and being colonized. And right now... We're, we're still fighting it in court. There was the oral arguments from both sides, the plaintiff, Dave Davis's attorney, and then we had Julian Ogden and a bunch of others. Just recently in Hawaii for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to hear our oral arguments regarding our Chamorro Land Trust and also 
it will be part and will affect our self-determination, our plebiscite. The Chimoto Land Trust, how was, how did that come about? That was, it started out as Arendu, because after the war, a lot of Chamorros were dependent on canned food uh, exports uh, coming in. And that was because, like I mentioned earlier, when they recaptured the island, they destroyed a lot of the agricultural uh, community areas within the different parts of the island. And we were being occupied and they were using a lot of our land. Also, you know, they were spraying a lot of DDT and, and um, Agent Orange rainbow herbicides. Thank God we didn't really go all out back to farming because I can imagine how much more sick and casualties from the contamination would have been. But the arendu was to promote subsistence uh, farming and, and subsistence uh, production. So, uh, so, you know, through agricultural and when they and, and also for people to that were displaced and didn't have uh, uh, land because it was taken by the military, that the land trust was called the Rendu, then they made it the land for the landless. And then now it's the Chamorro Land Trust Commission. And that's supposed to allow the Chamorros who do not have land or are homeless that were also affected by the land grabbing, the illegal land takings, and was to be distributed amongst the Chamorros so that we can have a place of our own. So, you know, we can move on with our life with, you know, peace and harmony and having something to build your family and, and at the same time cultivate. But that, that you know, is all funded and taken care of by the federal government. And they always underfund that program because you know it's a it's a it's by design of uh, colonialism and colonization it, those areas they always underfund it because they don't want the indigenous people to progress or 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 move up you know because then we we will be able to go against them that sounds a lot like um, the department of hawaiian homelands um, which is supposed yeah. to give land to native hawaiians lowercase n and yeah, that started in 1921, but to date, they've only distributed um, about 12%. And a majority of the land that was supposed to go to Native Hawaiians have actually been leased to non-Native Hawaiians. That's exactly just like what's going on here in Guam. And then what doesn't help the situation too is we have a lot of Chamorros who have, you know, traveled the world, got educated in the U.S. and you know, they bring back this hardcore, I call it capitalist hyena mentality. And instead of helping the tomorrows with those lands by giving them a place for their own, they cater to the business and they, they keep giving it out also to non people who are not tomorrows. Those are all just under the table, illegal uh, corruption, you know, within our government, but it's gotten way, way uh, under control and less compared to back in the 70s, 80s and early 90s. It, it, they're really eyeing it and monitoring the, the inventory now. Well, what we need to do for me, and I was telling the our Magahaga, our first lady governor, I said, you know, we need Lou to exhaust the inventory before whatever was uh, results comes out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals because if they uphold 
Judge Tidinku Gatewood's um, ruling in favor of Dave Davis, eventually the Chamorland Trust will be non-existent. They throw in a receivership or a different federal entity will come in. And they're going to start distributing the land to any U.S. citizen that is a resident here in Guam that is landless or it meets the criteria to, to get housing or, or, or land. And that right there is going to really totally mess everything up because our Chamorro people, they are already at this point so loyal and patriotic to the U.S. and a lot of them are so subservient and they feel like they're, they're, it's hopeless and there's nothing you can do to go against the federal government or our government. Me, I'm a hardcore activist. I bring out what, you know, the really meaningful and, and very aggressive uh, type of um, protesting. We block the roads and the bases and, you know, people have gotten arrested. We, we've been, you know, um, threatened, uh, shamed. But, you know, there's a lot, though, that understand what we're doing and what we're fighting and advocating for. And there's even people settled here that, you know, agree with what we do. And and we still got a good amount of Chamorros that, you know, in their heart, they, they want to be participating and helping out. But, you know, we're so sucked into the system of federal. Because even just working for Gov Guam, you sign a paper that you can't be of a protest or anything that, 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 that causes uh, any kind of uprising against the federal because, you know, it's federal funds. And then you have a lot of the, in the National Guard or in the Reserve or prior service. And they're so patriotic that, that is, patriotism is obedience. Is that a it helicopter? sounds like a DMZ here. <laughs> if you don't hear, if you don't hear helicopters, you're going to hear jets on a daily basis. And it's only going to get worse with this military uh, marine realignment from Okinawa to Guam. Sounds like a DMZ on a regular basis, especially when they have uh, training, like van shield and all kinds of different trainings. That was a military hel helicopter? Yes, it was. Huh. And it's on a regular. As a Chamorro, what would decolonization look like to you? How should Guam be decolonized? Decolonization is... The people who are on the census of the 1950 Organic Act and their descendants, and there's even people in there that are not even Samoan, but it's best that we go by that census and that time frame because it's being fair already. And at the same time, uh, most of them, if you were to see these people who were even settlers, they, they are one of the land already as well. And even others that have recently migrated but you know it's just so sad that that we have to go through this injustice and we don't control our immigration so the floodgates just open up and and it it just this super minority at this point and it's just to correct the injustice of of after the war and before of course before the war when the u.s acquired uh Wuhan from spain to defeating them the Spanish American wars. But you know, what I see is that us Chamorros are in the bargaining table. We are there to negotiate with whatever usage and presence of the US federal government's military being here 
you know, because we're not being fully compensated for all these additional things that the the U.S. Uh, tags along with their laws and their their system and you know like the the migration. There's com the compact impact, the freely associated states of Micronesia, who have different mandates like the Jones Act and uh, the Capital Law and different mandates and regulations in federal policy that just doesn't allow the indigenous to really partake in a real democracy. That's what I see that's model to decolonization is is really practicing true indigenous Chamorro democracy to be able to be in the bargaining table and the federal government can't just do whatever they want without consent with our leaders and the people. You had mentioned earlier about the banning of the Chamorro language. Uh, are there any major efforts to revive the language? Yes, there is. We have uh, Chamorro... Uh, cultural studies, we have the Chamorro Affairs, and uh, we have kind of a starter emergence program recently, last year. They have uh, uh, outside, um, you can say, like Chamorro uh, schools, charter schools, or emergent programs also, and the university. But the problem there is... You know, already the damage was done since what the U.S. did by banning our language. And, and it left a stigma with a lot of Chamorros. You know, if you learn English, you're going to uh, be smarter, a doctor, a lawyer, a president. If you learn some more, you're going to be behind and uneducated. But that is uh, baloney. And that's already been proven. Uh, yes, we're trying to promote it. But what I can say from personal experience teaching my children since they were born uh, tomorrow as soon as they went to school the influence now is so great of uh, the Americanization and westernization that and of course technology and social media it's not helping our language it's it's bringing us backwards because the the children nowadays are more influenced to and and they're more encouraged and to learn English first and so much of it com compared to our language because we have the language in in the elementary schools but there's either not enough teachers or they only gi give a measly 35 to 45 minutes of instruction time and that program is not funded enough or promoted enough through the federal grants and system. And, and you know, it's for me, it's just done intentionally because we don't own the educational institution. And of course, if the federal is going to put in money, they're going to want their own stuff uh, being taught and perpetuated more than ours. So that, uh, you know, it's, it's really, really really hard right nowadays because also we're losing a lot of Chamorro fluent speakers. I'm very fluent. I can speak it. I can teach. It's just, um, you know, we, we are the minority and we're, there's less of us that use it nowadays. And there's a chance of it going extinct if we don't, if we don't uh, promote and build more uh, emergent schools and charter schools and daycare centers to only teach tomorrow while we still have, you know, 
some Chamorro flu- fluent and proficient speakers. And that's another thing that's harming it is the curriculum. In order to teach Chamorro in, in the schools, you have to include curriculum. How can you learn a language through textbook when you don't even and uh, can't even speak it? You have to learn how to speak it first, and then you move into the tech, you know, curriculum, right, reading and writing. And and that's not helping because the ones that are learning from a book, they they're gonna rely on a book to learn how to say it and and how to put it together. But even with a book and dictionary, you cannot put uh, it together like the way you can if you just learn it orally through conversation because our language is, is very unique. You know, one word can mean like five things. You say five, six words can mean like a long sentence. And here's another example. Let's say one page of a English essay, right? In tomorrow, you can make that into half or sometimes less than half. Because some words you got to really, you got to hear it and you have to feel it and then you put it together in your head. It's like philosophy and expression. Some will say, yeah, English, same thing. No, not, not really. It's very hard to translate tomorrow into English. You can get to a little bit of, of the definition or the meaning, but it's not the same when you use it as a Chamorro speaker. Are you personally a Chamorro speaker? Yeah. So in your family... I just said, uh, yes, uh, I do speak Chamorro. So in your family, the Chamorro language never died? With the younger generation, it's been really difficult to maintain it within the family and the house. And there's even a lot of Chamorro families that are trying. Some are doing good, some it's hard. But as soon as the child gets older and as they progress into the educational system with a lot of the influences and the, the new generation, upcoming generation, they're just more accustomed and comfortable with speaking English. And also, you know, they... Some of them, to me, have, have feel stigma or they're ashamed of their language. But I think there is a renaissance turning that around recently, but I don't see it strong enough. What ways do you think that it can be improved? We have our own emergence program without any federal interference. Uh, I, I hope that we can get more funding and we just promote it more. And as soon as the children are are ready, good at speaking more, then you teach them English. And then because, you know, as they learn that, then they're going to kind of lose the Chamorro language. Uh, then you you instill it back again. And, you you know, that's how I, I went through it. You know, I didn't know how to speak English until I started going to, you know, kindergarten. I mean, I understood some English, but really everyone's talking and it don't make sense. And it sounds like <laughs> Jarbu and gibberish. <laughs> but I learned English pretty quick because it's a very easy language, if you ask me. But uh, if, if um, we can get more funding and we can do, you know, segregate um, certain populations that families are interested in having their children progress in tomorrow, tomorrow and then, you know, of course, they'll learn English and everything. Um, you know, that, that would help. And we get the last remaining good 
uh, Chamorro speakers and we, you know, what more our elders who are retired, just hire them, you know, and you don't need any, uh, you don't need any uh, uh, certification or, or degree to to have them in there because just knowing how to speak some more, you're already an expert. If, you know, you're already proficient because that's your first language. And, you know, of course, you can get the ones that got higher learning and educational skills in Tsamoru, and they're very proficient, and that was their first language, and now they can bring it in as a curriculum. And, of course, we will still teach English as well because, you know, they need to learn that to, to you know, be able to keep up with, with the world, just like other countries that have a national language. We just have to remove the influence of the, the American language first and, you know, make that second because, you know, that's the only way to preserve it. We have to remove the influences that's going to affect the Chomoru's uh, language to progress. Uh, you had mentioned earlier about um, the boarding schools. Yeah, that was um, during the early 1900s when the U.S. first acquired Guam. And so... Yeah, the, anyone, a lot of families... Uh, within the naval um like um i would call it the the naval garrison or the, the, the their headquarters of course you know because the federal government didn't have a, a like a full-on military uh, presence yet here with you know everything from a ship to ships i mean and 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 all the the logistical or or other uh Stuffs to maintain uh, a heavy presence of military uh, soldiers. So, when when they came in, you know, the ones closest to the headquarters, of course, those children and certain families of that time, they either voluntarily made their children go to those schools, but also some were, if you were selected, you're gonna go learn English, and you didn't have a choice. And what even made it worse is they're banning our language within the the village, primarily Aganya, and that's where the the biggest populace was located in Aganya, and that's where they branched themselves. And they left the stigma. They left the stigma, just made everyone disregard of who they are and their language and their you know it, it just. But when that happened was really after World War Two. Because they did the Organic Act, which basically forced U.S. citizenship onto the Chamorro. So now we really have to abide by their laws and their regulations, their policies and their acts. So then that's when the Department of Education system came in and pretty much the assimilation was island-wide now and throughout the whole population. And a lot of the Chamorros, you know, the elders at that time, you know, they were brainwashed, you know, they were lied to and influenced to allow the children to go in there. And and what also induced it was the high rate of our Chamorros joining the military. So now we sound, we look, and we talk like our master, the colonizer, the U.S. federal government. But people from Guam don't exactly have full U.S. citizenship. They have uh, what's called U.S. nationals. So they cannot yes. vote in federal elections. And um, my understanding is to, is that um, 
people from Guam, American Samoa, and the Micronesian uh, Kofa states, if they join the military, they don't acquire all of the full benefits. No, they're not constitutional American citizenships or citizens. They are American nationals. So basically, people from Guam, they can come to the U.S., work in the U.S., but they cannot participate in the full political spectrum of um, American... Only if you leave Guam. Only if you leave Guam. When you live on Guam, not even an American citizen can vote for their president when they make their residency here in Guam. Oh, okay. Because we are a perception, that's why. We're a non-self-governing territory. And because of the way the trees, uh, Peace Treaty of Paris and the way the insular cases and the possessions of the United States and its territories, if you read those acts and those mandates and those laws, um, Guam is just a possession. And I keep telling everyone that, that. you know, the sad thing is our brothers, sisters of the Northern Marianas, Lutetinin Saipan, are more defined U.S. citizens and simply because they're commonwealth. But they also have a covenant, a covenant that protects them for in the land. Yes, they gave up certain stuffs like the the submerged lands and the ocean. You know, that was the give and take to be U.S. citizen. But they were allowed through the covenant, Article 12, to, it's called the Northern Mariana's descent. That means no one can come in and buy it unless you're, buy land or own land, unless you're part of the Northern Mariana's descent. And those are the same thing. They're using the census of 1950. Wow, I think too another point, and and they're mm-hmm. more they're more constitutional U.S. citizens than the Chamorros here in Guam. Over there, they're not considered uh, American nationals. They're they're pretty much constitutional. The, yes, they don't vote for president, but they do have a seat and they do have a spot in the the House of Representatives. In in you know, unless they do have a a delegate, yeah, they don't have much power, but. See, the thing that's unique about the Marianas is, if I'm not mistaken, it's every 25 years they renew the Commonwealth. If the U.S. does not want to take care or help out the Marianas, when it comes time for that renew, they don't have to renew. They can go to a different nation and country because after World War II, when the U.S. tried to bring in the trust territoryship and, you know, of course, they were doing the same thing, trying to take over the land and and... They were basically segregating the Chamorros. The Chamorros fought back, you know. So they were able, the the Chamorros from the Marianas, to unite. And they went to the UN. They asked for umbrella, to umbrella them, to, you know, for safety and economics and stuff. But they were also allowed to go to different countries. And what happened was the... the, the Marianas leaders at that time, of course, they're 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 getting everything together, figuring out how they're gonna make uh, their political status and what to choose from, and you know, they they saw that the, the they wanted the U.S. you know, because of course their money is very powerful, and you know they are a big nation and and they have wealth, so what you know what they did is they did a bluff. They went to Japan, a delegation of the leaders united from Lutetinian, Saipan, Alimogen, and Pagan. They went to the Japan uh, government and the and they said, hey, you know, we did business before, you know, about, that was back in the sugarcane and copra days and, and uh, the katsu days, the bonita, the tuna, the tuna. 
and he said, hey, the U.S. don't want to help us, so why don't uh, we we do business economically and and you know whatever um, we can make out of it geopolitically, you know whatever agreements because they're allowed to. So that you know just right before they even made it back to Saipan, those leaders at that time already the Saipan government was already getting a call from. I'm pretty sure the White House and the Congress and the Pentagon, okay, let's uh, negotiate. And from then on, it just, it, they kept negotiating and negotiating all the way until 1992, if I'm not mistaken, is when they were officially Commonwealth. Do you think, too, another issue between um, the different Micronesian states, uh, Micronesian countries, uh, Commonwealths and um, free association states, along with Guam, is that um, <clears throat> Micronesia was well? Micronesia in itself is a colonial term, but yes. parts of Micronesia fell under different European powers. For example, Palau fell under first, Germany. yes, Spain, Germany, Japan, the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then with Guam, Guam was part well, U.S. And then the Marianas was sold to Germ- German, the German yes. So do you think but that? But then they didn't. Sorry. So do you think that also had an influence in the way that uh, Chamorros would interact with, for example, Chukis? Well, uh, because of the colonial experiences in the various parts of Micronesia, there can be misunderstandings between the Micronesian uh, peoples because of yeah the colonial experiences. Um, Yes, uh, Guam, of course, because Christianity, and then we we clothe ourselves more, and and we probably regarded ourselves because that's what a lot of the Micronesian communities, you know, the smaller islands, uh, have always uh, thought about us. Chamorros, like you know, we thought we were better than them because you know, smarter or this and that, and more educated, or we had more resources as well, but. Yes, uh, you know, the Chamorros of the Marianas, we do have a big influence through the Spanish. We, to even uh, in a lot of ways, even in the culture, you know, uh, it, it's a mix of both of our old Chamorro um, beliefs, but also infused with a lot of the, the Spanish, which is European, yes. Mm, um, and but that's mainly because of the religion, uh, Catholicism. The Catholicism, right? And that's also another difference with Guam and the other Micronesian countries. The most of them are mainly Protestant. Yes, so that will create a like tension, a segregation, and a yeah. divide. Yeah. And then with uh, Catholicism in Guam, I think you had mentioned it before, but there was um, some mixing with ancient Chamorro rites into the Catholic rites. Yeah, the with the older generation, like the way they would verse and say certain, uh, like uh, Christian, uh, like like um, how do you say that um, verses? It, they they would incorporate certain, you know, like we would say tadzazuti, That means pray for him, pray for him. Now it's Tadzazutiam, Tadzazutiam. That's now more of the Vatican, Roman Vatican neo-catechumen or the new Vatican way. When you say Tadzazutiam, that means uh, 
pray for us because when we pray f- when we're doing a rosary for the dead we're doing it for our dead for the individual that died we're tsatsaloni the spirit we're misguiding we're we're like um guiding the spirit to go to you know our creator or or heaven and now they're changing the words uh to say meaning to pray for us when that is not a, uh, you know, was before we didn't say it that way because we were still incorporating like the way we would pray for our dead or pray for certain uh, type of, uh, uh, of prayer. Maybe you're asking for something or forgiveness. Did you catch that? Yeah, so... Yeah, you know, there, there's things that we say in the, in the rosaries and in the mass that is because of the way the mentality and the way we spiritually think as Chamorros back then, it's changing now. Yeah, the church is changing it. But also, um, did the Spanish ever try to ban Chamorro as a language? No, no, they didn't. The Jesuit priests promoted it. They allowed it to thrive and continue on. Oh, but of course, we do inherit and borrowed a lot of Spanish words because, or not a whole lot, but uh, you know, they, it has. Or when I talk, I I do say some Spanish words. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. if I was to really take my time and speak more slower, I can try to filter out as much Spanish words as I can, because I still know some of the old ways of saying things. Like they'll say "corazón," that's the heart, right? Mm-hmm. The way is "mong mong mu," "mong mong." Yeah, that's like one example. So it was really during the time of the American... I, nowadays we say, yeah, they're also doing like a Spanglish kind of talking nowadays. <laughs> so they'll say, but the real way is, that means that's my family, your family, his family, their family. Well, it's just interesting to me that um, it wasn't the Spanish that actually banned the Chamodo language, but it was the Americans who banned. They just wanted to control. kill off all the ones that resisted, yeah. And they did have Chamorros, though, that converted back then during those days and intermarried with the Spanish. And we still have some Chamorros that carry, like, the, the gene, you know, the you know, the resemblance of, of our ancestors. These are some pretty big boys. They look <laughs> almost like Hawaiians, but more like a Mr. Universe Hawaiian. <laughs> Maybe not as tall as them, but they got some big bones and big shoulders and big heavy arms and legs <laughs> and big backs and big necks and big heads. Uh, what about tattooing? When the Spanish came, they didn't notice any of that. But the outer islands... Of uh, Micronesia, yes, they practiced that. We probably did a long time ago, and then it stopped at one point, maybe. And by the time the Spanish came, no one was doing that. Um, is there something you want to say to other indigenous peoples who are listening? What I would like to say is continue fighting it. Don't give up. Teach the language. Teach whatever is left. Whatever they took from us and whatever little that is left, don't allow anyone to take that away from us. Thank 
giniha mo na todo eno na tiningu guatu giza ifamogonmu intriga guatu zapweda ola mon siga in in nalola i kustumbri i linala tsomoru i heningi ta ni taihineku taihineku mona para i tsomoru san jani tau 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 no nai jani nayo no para zapweda o sina lokwe i manrebu na kina hulu jani manrebu na hiu nation para sia u maginia mona jani famagun 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 nia lokwe so that's what I would love to let the Chomorus know to keep perpetuating, to keep uh, passing on our language, especially our beliefs, and to don't stop teaching the children. And hopefully, maybe the next generations will pass it on to their own children as well, their own children's children's children. Mahalo to Kamehameha Schools for sponsoring the production of this story. Thank you for listening to Native Stories. For those interested, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under user page name Our Native Stories. And check out our website and subscribe to our email list at www.nativestories.org. Also, stay tuned for our mobile application coming out on Android and Apple stores soon.